Welcome to Omalort, Chicago history you never learned in school. Today I am joined by Pat Westmcott. How are you doing today, Pat? I am cautiously optim terrified about this. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm looking forward to it, but it's terrifying. So what? Yeah, yeah. As we record this, Joe Biden is in Chicago. Congratulations, if you care about that. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm not downtown. I'm just glad I, I can successfully avoid whatever's happening down there. I saw some pictures. There's a lot of cops, some protesters. Not a lot. I just am avoiding it at all costs. Yeah, that sounds 100% reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Protesters and cops. and What are the protesters mad about, though? I I don't know. I saw signs. Oh, what about the little people? What about the little people? Is what I think the sign was. I don't. Here's the thing that's lucky about Chicago is the MAGAverse is in general convinced that it's a hellscape. Okay. And they don't come here. Yeah. I, so, I have heard that. I've heard a lot of things where they're like, oh, it's terrible. Don't go to Chicago. You'll get unalived and you, it, everything will, everybody will die. Even if your family isn't with you, they'll die too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We joke on Twitter. Went downtown, got murdered today. Went down, went downtown, got murdered today. All right. Now, yeah. how many times have, has it happened to you? There how many times you know, have I you get... been murdered there? So how, how many times have you been murdered in in, in, I guess it happens about once a week. Okay. Yeah. Fair. That yeah. Is, uh, not, it's not, that's not excessive. You can do it once a week, right? It's not, yeah, not, there's, <laughs> that's okay. Totally fair. I'm, I think that, I think that their fears are overblown if you're only getting murdered once a week. You want to know what a bigger threat to Chicago is right now? Joe Biden. Canadian wildfires. Yep. Okay. Yeah. We, we do export <laughs> those. Yeah. We just like, to give away hickory-flavored air. Okay? Thank you. Hickory-flavored air. We were the worst in the world yesterday. Not oh, as bad okay. as New York was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I remember but that. Yeah. The sky wasn't a weird putrid shade of orange. You can smell the air. In yeah. Yeah, it, we've had them recently here. There was one a couple hundred kilometers north of me. That's four miles for, for you, who all y'all who don't know what a kilometer is. A couple hundred is four miles. That's a conversion you can use in, in, in everyday life. And then, yeah, you could smell it here. I could, I could taste the air. I was up, up the mountain with me dog, and he was fine. I was not because I have the asthma. So I get a little wheezy from time to time. I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. 
And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples. And so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Today, we are going to talk about the 1968 Democratic National Convention, otherwise known as the 68 DNC. And I promise... Nothing bad is going to happen. Perfect. That's I love happy endings, happy beginnings, happy middles. It's just, it's got to be an Oreo sandwich of nothing so, bad. Nothing bad. What do you know about it? Not a lot. Not, All right. Not a lot. It was, I know there were troubles, to borrow an Irish term, but I don't know a lot about those troubles. But like you said, nothing bad will happen, right? Nothing bad. Perfect. It's notoriously a happy event for everybody. It was like a trip to Disney. Yeah, that's perfect. Oh, wait. Was it like the trip to Disney where there's white supremacists protesting out front? Because that's happening these days. That That is happening these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll find out. Okay. So I didn't know much beyond that there were riots. And when I think about the 1960s, I, the daughter of former hippies, think it was one big Bob Dylan song. People focus on the riot portion and don't pay a lot of attention to the actual convention, about which I think even friend of the pod, Bozo the Clown, would have said, not my circus, not my monkeys. Yes. That, okay. Yeah. I like that guy. He's... Uh... And I... I think we need to set up 60s counterculture because sound bites from elected officials cause me to assume they are wholly unaware of anything that happened prior to 2008, let's say. Yeah, 2008. That was like we had the birth of Christ and then we skipped forward a few years in 2008. That that sounds like an accurate historical reckoning of, of society. Yeah. Jesus? Oh, wait. Yeah. Yep. And nothing else I happened, mean, right? I did a seventh grade research paper on the hippie movement. 
I was into it. Okay. In interest of brevity, I'm just going to quote Wikipedia. I tend not to use Wikipedia as a quotable source, but it's the counterculture of the 1960s. It's not too... We don't have nefarious actors editing it for their own personal reasons, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we're good. Yeah. The counterculture of the 1960s was an anti-establishment cultural phenomenon that developed in the Western world starting in the mid-1960s and continued until the early 1970s. Big fan already. Have... Big fan already. Pardon? Big fan Big already. Fan. Yep, let's go. We should have some more of that now. We're going to talk about how this parallels. Oh, good. So the effects of the movement have been ongoing to the present day. The aggregate movement gained momentum as the civil rights movement in the United States had made significant progress, such as the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and with the intensification of the Vietnam War that same year. It became revolutionary to some as the movement progressed, widespread social tensions also developed concerning other issues and tended to flow along generational lines regarding respect for the individual, human sexuality, women's rights, traditional modes of authority, rights of non-white people, end of racial segregation, experimentation with psychoactive drugs, and different interpretations of the American dream. Many key movements related to these issues were born or advanced within the counterculture of the 1960s. Some of that was good, and then there was the war. And I was like, I don't, yeah, no, yes. You want it. You want to cheer for the whole thing. You want the whole album to really slap. And the war, no, not so much. It's worth noting that they had a lot of protest in the 1960s. Yeah, against a war that sucked. Against the war that sucked, desegregating schools. Yeah. Okay, that was a good one. I like that. I like. I like. Uh, I like taking away those barriers. You had a lot happening in the 60s, and coming of age in the 1990s, I envied them. Yeah, that's relatable content. I uh, I also was growing up in the 90s. And I still like Pearl Jam. I like Pearl Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Why am I underscoring this? Because when I hear people like Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Tucker Carlson, and Alex Jones, I genuinely question if they know about the counterculture. Yeah, I question whether they know about much, but what the listeners couldn't see there was my eyes doing a full 360 into the back of my head with each name that was read there. <laughs> yeah. Did they know about the counterculture? I think they know about it enough to shit on it. They want to use it as a way to d dismiss people who are trying to stand up for their own human rights now, but that is, oh, we can dismiss, or they, they'll try to use that, the end of history arguments where they're like, oh, didn't, we had a, you had a black president, not my president, I'm Canadian, but uh, you had a black president, isn't racism over? Blank stares all around, can't, yeah, that, all those people. Yeah. And when the mutiny in Russia was happening, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley tweeted the following. 
Do you remember when you were growing up? Do you remember how simple life was? How easy it felt? It was about faith, family, and country. We can do that again. But to do that, we must vote Joe Biden out. Blaine stares. And was this? Yeah. Was it when they came out with the movies my parents wouldn't let me watch about what would happen if there was a nuclear war? Yeah, yeah. Was it when John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan? You see, it all the stuff they talk about happened for a certain sector of the population. And that certain sector of the population looks an awful lot like me. White guys. And yeah. Yeah, so all that stuff, oh, we can go back to that. So there's some details there that you don't seem to be acknowledging right now. And those details are the shitty ones. And yeah, that's, I think they're fundamentally dishonest when they're saying things like this. Oh, we can go back to that. Why stop there? How about women can be property again? That sounds like, no. why do women need to vote? How about horse and care? Yeah. Oh, we'll get into this later. There, there are people who think women should not vote. I know, and they've got nineteen kids. Yes, <laughs> Duggar well, joke. Sorry, I did do a bonus Patreon episode all about the Duggars. Oh, yeah. How no, much? Back uh, to... How much did you have to drink to get through that? I mean, we might have had some wine. Yeah. The thing about these people is, how is this happening in America, in Tifa, Marxism, groomers, people who hate our country? We're living in unprecedented times. It's insane, and that's in the backdrop of what I'm bringing to my research of the 1968 DNC. We had a presidential election, as we do every four years here in the United States of America. Prior to the election, each party hosts a convention. The topic and subject matter of this podcast might indicate Chicago hosted the 1968 DNC. Not just Chicago, but Richard Daly's Chicago. Yeah, that's a name that rings a bell, and it's not a nice bell. We'll have plenty of time to get into Richard the First. You promised that nothing bad was going to happen, and I think you might have lied about that. He got me. As the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Haynes Johnson, who covered the convention, wrote in a retrospective in the Smithsonian, which was titled, When the Bosses Struck Back, describing the convention as such. In its psychic impact and its long-term political consequences, it eclipsed any other such convention in American history, destroying faith in politicians, in the political system, in the country, and in its institutions. No one who was there or who watched it on television could escape the memory of what took place before their eyes. Nothing Bad, though, took place before their eyes. Depends on who you ask. Okay. Oh. I often hear the phrase, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. And I do not like a riot. I do not think you should riot. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. There's a reason why I started with 
the current stuff here. Rhymes. Yeah. What do you know about Chicago and its protests slash riots? I know about Riot Fest. Different. Okay, so we're not talking about where the Descendants are playing this year. I think it's Descendants mm-hmm. this year. I, I, there's no effects there. No effects are they're breaking up. They're, they're I, I don't, I, I saw the riot fest. I saw someone in Twitter being offended by the name. Okay. Which is a really weird thing to get upset about for a festival that's been happening for a really long time. Let's just say we're known for our rough and tumble politics here in Chicago. Our very first riot was an incident called the 1855 Lager Beer Riots. I did one of my first podcast episodes about that. We've had Haymarket and Pullman. Okay. Now, what's this Lager Beer Riot about? What did they do? There was a know-nothing politician who was extremely punitive towards immigrants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They literally, for their right to sell and drink beer. I did an episode about it if you I, want to know more. I, yeah. I, yeah we've, can we just pause this? I'll go and listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I got stuck. <laughs> you've got, yeah, you've got places to be. You're, I'm just here wasting your damn time. I'm really not a good guest here. I, I have to say, this is this has gone off the rails. you got to stop letting me talk. No, it's great. I love it. Here's the thing about riots or protests. Protest is Freudians. They wow. happen a lot in Chicago. Last year after the day, I sent a friend a text message. Just said, on Saturday, do you want to go protest school shootings then go to brunch? Yes, I do. Yeah. I once went to a uh, a rally pro-gay marriage at City Hall during my lunch break. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. They happen and they're often largely unremarkable, except for when they are not. It is one of those two things. You're, right. Yeah, it's going to be one of those two. There, I don't know that there is a third option there. When I say unremarkable, really peaceful. Because I think you can have a protest that is large that doesn't go off the rails. Yeah, yeah. It, you, it doesn't have to become a problem. It's when those people with specific uniforms show up. Oh, we'll talk about that. I was talking about the Proud Boys. Who are you talking oh. about? <laughs> so, Dead great. Yeah, on and just on behalf of Canada, I'm really sorry that Gavin McGinnis started that garbage. I did. You see the video of. The Proud Boys and the Rose City Nationalists beating each other up. I haven't seen that one yet. I've heard that one exists. The last video of Proud Boys I saw was them getting the shit scared out of them and possibly asses kicked trying to interrupt a drag time story hour in New York. And they're just, New Yorkers are yelling, get the fuck out of my town. But it's amazing. I'm like, good work, New York. Good work. Yes. Yes. They're so, running away. We're just trying to help people. It's, no, you're not. You're here to be a bitch. I, yeah. I did see the video when they needed to get a police escort back to their car because they were so scared. <laughs> yeah. uh, Apparently, they went to go protest 
Pride in Portland. And they ended up getting in a fight with the Rose City Nationalist. And now there's other groups that have decided that they're just going to punch Proud Boys on sight if they see them. And I'm okay with it. I Now, as... As, as I do know some comedy writers, and they would tell you that it's not funny to punch Proud Boys until you do it three times. Then it's a real joke. We got to get that hat trick. We, the rule of three. It is, yes. Yes. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Punch them hard, then ask them what their favorite breakfast cereal is. Sorry. Yes, I, just, yeah. <laughs> those videos crack me. For, for anybody who doesn't know, the Proud Boys initiation is that they get punched, but it's really just like really lame slaps. They giggle while they scream out five cereal brands. All right, back to 1968. First, we need a little context. On January 30th, 1968, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops launched surprise attacks. And according to a WTW article titled when the Democratic Party was torn apart. The title might be a spoiler. WTTW, by the way, is our public broadcasting here in Chicago. Okay. Our PBS, our PBS affiliate. Okay. Photos and TV broadcast of the Tet Offensive revealed to many Americans the brutality of the war and proved a central lie of Lyndon B. Johnson's administration. The repeated claim that the U.S. was close to victory. This is me with a shocked face. War is vicious and politicians lie. This is the first I've ever heard of it. I think part of, and this is a generational difference, is that boomers and above remember a time when they trusted politicians. Are we sure they're not just senile? No, I think Richard Nixon is... uh, Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a breaking point right there. He's... Yeah, screw that. Yeah, Yeah. and those of us who were born post-Nixon have never, ever trusted an institution. This is just my theory. Those born pre-Nixon trusted the institutions. And it bit them in the ass. Yes. Sometimes you pay extra for that, though. Sometimes you pay extra for that. I want to be super transparent. I have watched documentaries with the cops that interviewed cops. I've watched documentaries interviewing journalists. I've tried to look at this from all sides. And I want to start by saying I respect Vietnam veterans. My father is one. And they were forced to fight a war and treated horribly when they return. And that is a tragedy. And as I prepared this episode, I asked my mom, what was the war about? She still can't give me an answer. And she lived through it. My dad is also the person who introduced me to Bob Dylan's songs such as Masters of War and God on Our Side, which are radically anti-war. I grew up playing with a button that said war is not healthy for plants, children, and other living things. They gave me an incense burner, an incense urn, actually, 
that said this was burning the first time you heard Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, all of whom I saw in concert. I'm going to just be straight up here. I align with the anti-war protesters. And then, interesting fun fact, the song God on Our Side by Bob Dylan inspired Tim Rice to write the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's I, a line about Judas Iscariot. Did yeah. Judas Iscariot have God on his side? A few months later, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, people rioted and there were orders issued to shoot, to kill arsonists and shoot to maim looters, rendering him the nickname Shoot to Kill Daily. Yeah, no, okay. Yep. No. Not a lot of good feelings there because you're leaving that, the shoot to kill up to the discretion of who? The police. Not a lot of room to feel good about that. Not, you know, just, can, yep, not, that is, I am not a fan. I do not like it. It's also worth noting and this is going to be an important thing to remember to create the context for the entire event. He was obsessed with Chicago's image to the point of not letting anyone film movies or television shows in Chicago lest they employ the mobster trope. Okay, so just trying to avoid any mention of Al Capone? Yes. Oh. Mayor Daly, I just mentioned Al Capone. Yes, that was... So, sticking it to him a couple decades later. It's a couple, two, it three decades. It creates a world of... I, I don't want to say... I'm not going to diagnose him, but definitely an insecurity. A little bit. A little bit. Pulitzer Prize journalist Mike Royko. He is a humorist who wrote for decades about Chicago and the politics. And he was syndicated, and it's how a lot of people who didn't live in Chicago know about Chicago politics. Okay. My parents read Royko for years. And in fact, the book he wrote, which is called Boss. It's an unauthorized biography about Mayor Daley that he wrote in 1970. My dad recommended I read it. It's worth noting the Chicago Reader, which is our free weekly here in Chicago, calls this book a trial. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they, he probably couldn't have got an authorized biography of the guy by writing this book is what you're saying. He was at the journalism elk where he held politicians accountable. Yeah. Oh, I like those ones. Yeah. He, in fact, there was somebody who teaches journalism up at Northwestern. And like today was the day that I taught all my students about Mike Ryko. And he's now their favorite writer. And everyone wants to know what he would think of Donald Trump. Yeah? Yeah. That's a, you put Mayor Daly on trial. Let's see what you can do with the tangerine tyrant. Let's go. 
Oh, Mike Royko is a person, and this is my favorite quote by Mike Royko. No self-respecting fish would want to be wrapped in a Murdoch paper. <laughs> I like it. That's nice. Yes. That's a nice thing to say. He started his career in a newspaper called the Chicago Daily News that went out of business in the 70s. He moved to the Sun-Times, got per purchased by Rupert Murdoch, and then he moved to the Chicago Tribune. He was not going to work for Murdoch. Yeah, no, there's a, there, there's a certain amount of pride that you need to take into your work if you care about it. And working for Rupert Murdoch, even as far back as this, like you said, the 70s? I think it was the 80s when he 80s. went over to the Tribune. Yeah, working for Rupert Murdoch back then didn't leave you with a lot of room to feel good. And that was long before he enabled the shit that he's enabled. Yeah. It, yeah. Also, listeners, I am 95% sure that there was a production of Boss, exclamation mark, the musical. Bruce Springsteen. No, an adaptation of Royko's book about Mayor Daly. Oh. I'm, yeah, okay, okay. I see where I went wrong with that one. Yeah, okay. boss. Take, I'm taking yeah. notes here. I'm taking notes, so, I, yeah. This will be on the test, right? This will be on the test. Perfect. Okay. Now, the first thing to know, according to Royko, is there was an incident at a peace march earlier in the year, and Royko calls it a dress rehearsal. Hmm. Not for Boston Musical. No. This is how he describes it. Nobody knows for certain where it began. Later reports say it may have started when about a dozen people out of the 3,000 who were standing peacefully snapped the thin plastic line and tried to sit down on the plaza. Another version said that one young man jumped into the waters of the plaza's reflecting pool. All witnesses, including the police, agree that there were no rocks, eggs, or punches thrown. But within minutes, it would be a mini version of Michigan and Balbo in August. I have my hands buried, my face buried in my hands right now. That's why my voice sounds like this. I don't like the way this is going to go, especially in light of the fact you promised nothing bad would happen. Yep, you did. People were trying to flee. These people attending the peace rally, they were trying to flee, going into restaurants, and the cops were dragging them out and beating them. What? Okay, I thought I was preparing myself for the worst, and you slid under that bar. Limbo champion. Thank you. The media didn't cover the event itself because they were usually uneventful. Okay. Okay. Reiko goes on to say, those who hadn't been there didn't believe it had happened. They assumed it had begun with an assault on the police, and they attributed the report from the victims to the tendency of liberals to magnify police misconduct, the Anne Frank syndrome, as someone once put it, forgetting that there had been a real Anne Frank and that her story was hardly exaggerated. 
why did those words go together in that order? An and syndrome. I don't know. I couldn't find much about it. I'd never heard it before. I think it might have been a dog whistle that didn't blow very loud. And maybe it's because Mike Royko pointed out the absurdity of it. Yeah, that's that. That's that. Those words made me unable to word. I. It's like just they're talking about they're accusing people of making shit up, but they're going to talk and oh, oh. Maybe they were thinking she exaggerated her. That must be it. That diary was an exaggeration. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ryko goes on to say, the people in the April 27th peace march weren't black, but they represented other enemies of the peace. The liberal, the left, the young, and the upper class. Ah, terrible people, all of them. Many policemen are veterans and in a quasi-military job. So they dislike the peace groups. The department's intelligence division known as the Red Squad, is one of the biggest political intelligence units outside the FBI. Most of its members, however, can't tell the difference between a housewife marching for peace and a member of the radical weathermen. Anything left of their American legion is radical, revolutionary, red. Oh, obviously. Yeah. I do not like a square. I do not think they care. I like these occasional rhymes. I wish they'd happen all the time. I can't do a rhyme after every fact. You can't if you didn't want to hurt me as much as you have so far. We're beating people coming. that are being dragged out of restaurants who are hiding from police. Could take it easy on me. I don't know. This is a two-parter. Okay. We're just warming up. Remember, this was a dress rehearsal. Okay. It's also worth noting that in 1960, the force had been exposed as the most corrupt in the United States at that time. That's a cake you want to you, you want to be the trophy on top of that cake. Absolutely. I was perusing the the news today, and an Inspector General report came out that the Chicago police force currently is notorious at not filing paperwork to the point where they don't really know how many times they've had warrants for the wrong place. Yeah, that's that's obvious. But and why would you file paperwork? Then there's a paper during the George Floyd protests. 18 police officers at the height of the protest Mm. broke into Representative Bobby Rush's office and took a nap, lounged, ate some of his popcorn that he seemed particularly aggrieved about. (laughs) You got some people going Goldilocks and the Three Bears in your office, but it's like, damn them, they took my popcorn. 
I'm here's the thing. I don't expect you to know who Bobby Rush is. That was my best impression of him. Damn it. I took my popcorn. Yeah. Bobby Rush was the co-founder of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they broke. Okay. So yeah. you've got the George Floyd riots happening. Yeah. And the cops are napping in his congressional office. Yep. Okay. Not a lot of good feelings about that. I'm going to go ahead. Yeah. And it just came out that they were supposed to get punished because notably people are looting stores in the neighborhood and they're taking a nap and eating the popcorn. I, I remember this. Yeah. Trying to be, trying to, you know, this is what happens when the cops aren't around. Right. Yeah. No, now, yes, this now, this now rings a bell. I just, I didn't catch the name. Bobby Rush there. Yeah, that I now this now rings a bell. I'm embarrassed. Egg on my face. And you know, that oh. one's that oops. Yeah. Now, back in 1968, the media, our good old friends, the media, they spent the summer sowing suspicions, describing every purported plot that they could print. And the police consider all of these claims as genuine. Of course. Yeah. I I want to point out the Yippies and Abby Hoffman in particular were masterful at getting media coverage with what would be, by today's terms, shitposting. In 1967, Hoffman rose to fame for threatening to levitate the Pentagon. Yes. Oh, that's it. That actionable intelligence there. Go. Ah, I bet they stopped him. The FBI file on Abby Hoffman is legendarily thick. It, there, there, there's a joke about the FBI being legendarily thick for believing the Pentagon there somewhere. I can't find that joke right now, though. And in 1968, he starts making these outlandish threats. For example, he makes the threat that they're going to put LSD in the city's drinking water supply. And these morons take it as credible. Yeah, that's that actionable intelligence. Again, we've got we've got to stop this. This is some uh, Batman villain shit. There's either two ways it could go. It could have been that they were going to infiltrate the water filtration plant, which is not plausible, but more plausible. But there's security. And if you think that they're going to infiltrate the water filtration plant, put some cops down there and protect the water filtration plant. They're busy kicking the shit out of restaurant goers. They're busy. It's not stopped. I don't know where all these magical cops are going to appear from. Now, I do not like your lies. I do not like them set in ties. Yes. The so the other one that's less plausible is Chicago's drinking water supply is Lake Michigan. If you believe Lake Michigan exists, okay. Chicago journalist Joel Wiseman said the types of threats that are made are absolutely preposterous, but just 
absolutely believed by the populace and by the mayor. Good satires. Hard. It's hard to tell <laughs> satire from the truth, right? It's, it's, it is. Uh, so what we have is a paranoid organism that's comprised of Mayor Daly's obsession and a Tucker Carlson level of fear-mongering, healing the fuzz, which grew until the whole city was just a vibe. Yeah, I, I think back to April Fool's Day when Jordan Peterson fell for that article about, about turning one lane of the Trans-Canada Highway into a bike lane. And he spent the weekend rage tweeting about it. This is the level of a, a analysis that we're talking about here. Critical thinking skills. It said in the article, this is a satire because no one gets jokes anymore. But Jordan Peterson still spent the weekend rage tweeting at Justin Trudeau about it. It's, it's spectacular. I, then demonstrating that he didn't understand that the Trans-Canada Highway is maintained by the provinces individually. So he's yelling at the prime minister, federal government, when it's the jurisdiction, unless it is a, over, going over a bridge uh, that crosses navigable water, that's the only time that the federal government's responsible for the Trans-Canada Highway. But how dare you try to turn this highway that's covered in ice uh, nine months out of the year into a bike lane? You're terrible. I don't, I don't understand. And all of a sudden, there was a Disney princess that wasn't the right pigment. I'm just going to tear up a little bit now. It's that, or it's the stupid Alex Jones believing that Antifa has contracts. Oh, yeah, they do. Alex, if you're listening, they do. They're just fun. They're pitted in trick so you can't read. All right. Okay. Yeah. No, that, but, it's that a so eager to be aggressive against the people that you don't like that you're willing to fall that you're you will fall for anything it's not that you're willing to do it you're you're primed to fall for whatever it is. we're gonna drop enough lsd into a great lake that it's gonna everyone in chicago is gonna be tripping balls god um yeah it is confirmation bias yeah and there's an account and i couldn't find it i couldn't remember enough details is actually an account of someone who deliberately puts out spoofed culture war things <laughs> to trigger the Jordan Petersons of the world. I love this person, whoever they are. If you're listening, please get at us. I want, I yeah. want, I want to read all of your work. And I can't remember the examples. We got to tell our story. Hackman wanted to have a festival of life in Lincoln Park. And... The city denied the permits, which is a clear violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Yeah. And according to Royko, the protesters went to federal court in an effort to force the city to issue permits, but were turned down by Judge Lynch, Daly's hard-drinking old law partner, whom he had elevated to the federal bench. Yeah, that's what you do with your old drinking buddies is you get them you get them jobs where they can then help you go about corrupty, doing corrupty stuff. Let's go crime in together. We used to drink a lot of PBR. 
So. Yes. And I love the fact that Ryko puts hard drinking. It's not even just drinking, but he's hard, hard drinking. drinking. Yeah. But yeah, he's got some real Rob Ford energy there. Let's uh, let's swear in Jamaican to smoke some crack. Chicago is a drinking town. I like it already. So hard drinking is. Yeah. It's a qualifier. One thing to know is Daly at the time was a kingmaker, at least until this, until this event. He was the second most important person in the party. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 they, the people get their pull and it's their endorsement really matters. Yeah. It, right. It sucks. It really sucks. The DOJ acknowledged the threat, but Attorney General Ramsey Clark thought Daly was overestimating things. Two things. Ramsey Clark. If that's not a name for a Fed. Yeah. And the Department of Justice in 1968 thought that Daly's fears were far-fetched. Oh, they probably went right along with them, though. Oh, no. No? Oh. King Richard was working directly with LBJ. Growing frustrated, anti-war protester Rennie Davis reached out to Roger Wilkins at the Department of Justice. And he told the Fed that in order to achieve mass mobilization for their cause, the event would have to be peaceful. Wilkins leaves him. Wilkins sitting down. He's like, this looks like any guy that I could have gone to University of Michigan with. So he goes, Wilkins, the Fed, goes to meet with Mayor Daly, trying to get him to negotiate with the various groups. But like any great tragedy, hubris was Daly's downfall. They advised him that not granting permits would make matters much worse. Wilkins specifically said in an interview I watched that within five minutes of sitting down with Mayor Daley, red started emanating from the mayor's collar and his jowl started growing. And then he said Daley launched into a 25-minute monologue about why he was right. Those are always the most convincing. Yes. Wilkins left the meeting and thought, and I quote from him, I think we're going to have violence. He is going to unleash his police department. Yeah. He goes on to say, Richard J. Daly was the embodiment of power so tightly wrapped up in its own righteousness that it cannot hear any words but those echoed out of his own mouth. He made it a morality play. It's really funny to get the image of a guy's neck turning red inside his shirt collar and then his jowls visibly. That's, that is a really funny image. And then it's, oh, we're having a good time. Oh, wait, no, there's going to be cops and there's going to be cops that, are, that we know are violent. But yeah. This yeah. is the FBI. This is the DOJ no. in 1968. No. Yeah. And they're worried about what's yeah. going on. Uh, no. Yeah. 
See that? There's there. I'm going in two directions because I just want to stay with that comedic image. No, he sucks. He sucks. Daly was initially worried about black protesters. So he spent the months leading up to the convention kissing asses, attending ribbon cuttings to the point where he named a street after MLK. It's so nice. It only happens when he wants something. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the police were also tamping down on black people. And in fact, most pro-black leaders got out of Dodge for the event. Yeah. Well, you said tamping down. I had a, I had a much worse feeling about that. A lot of policing in those neighborhoods. Yeah, okay. Oh, were they were going broken windows style? They were going broken windows Bro style. Okay, yep, yep. And we'll get into the riots in a bit. But what do you know about the state of the Democratic Party in 1968? Oh, a little, a little messy. Am I right? One, a good word is disarray. Disarray. Okay, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, like, my daughter's bedrooms. Disarray. Yes. Disarray. Disarray. Yes. Like, how old is your daughter? They are 11 and they are 9. And Yeah, so, just yeah. a little girl's bedroom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In an effort to evade embarrassment of coming in third in the Wisconsin primary, the current president, LBJ, he dropped out of the race to, <laughs> quote, focus on the war. Okay. It would have been the third primary and he would have come in third and that would have been really, it would be like Joe Biden coming in third now against, let's see who's running for Democrat. If Joe Biden was coming in third, particularly against RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, that would be embarrassing. At least <laughs> LBJ was coming in third against politicians who a chance. Had a chance. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was going to try and do, do an RFK impression, but I haven't eaten a cigar today. He wasn't running against a guy who's best now known for working out in his jeans. Ah, uh, shit. Yeah. If, if I have, okay, I'm not going to get into a rant about if I have to see RFK. If I have to, I'm not age shaming someone. If I have to see an unusually buff 70 year old man in my, Twitter feed anymore, I'm going to lose it. The story for a different time, but it's reminding me of that Putin and a horse thing. <laughs> I love those horse pictures of Putin. I do. So that's a, that, that is, that's, that, that is a man who is very secure in everything that he does. There's no, no, no height issues <laughs> there. There's no, he, that, that's a man who's never worn lifts in his shoes. So Johnson drops out. His VP, Hubert Humphreys, steps in and gets the delegates from the first two primaries. Punchable name, gotta say. Punchable, yeah. punchable oh, name. Punchable name. Punchable name, yeah. And he doesn't do any campaigning at all after entering the race. Why would you? He just thought he did it. He had, thought he had it. Also running was anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy. Better than Kevin McCarthy. Definitely better than Kevin McCarthy. 
And of course, RFK Sr. was shot earlier that year after winning the California primary. Yes. George McGovern steps in from the WTW piece. So the Democrats began their convention in late August in a confused muddle. Two competing anti-war candidates, one a latecomer who sought to win the strength of the late RFK's delegates, were up against an elite-sanctioned but unremarkable candidate who stood for an unpopular status quo. Outside in Chicago, activists from Youth International Party, Yippies, and the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, MOB. Nope. And pro- MOB. Nope. Nope. That's not what that acronym is. Nope. Nope. They're <laughs> MOB. Are we going MOAB like Utah? Or are we going to, or M-O-B-E? Because neither one it's of those M- things. It's M-O-B-E. Right. And so there were too many words for M-O-B-E. I don't know to tell you that's what they're called. Okay, we've heard a lot of rough things today, and that, I don't know why that one's sticking out in my head. That's it's a bad acronym. I don't understand. That's what they were called. Yeah. Okay. Back to the, the last sentence. MOB planned protest and events, turning up the heat and an already simmering pet. Okay. The delegate situation is a hot mess. Some states sent three sets of delegates. So they sent one for McGovern, one for Humphreys, and one for McCarthy. Because they don't know who they're going to vote for. I don't... Yeah. That, that, that's not how that works. No, it was how it worked before then. They had they had a McGovern Act after this to streamline how things happen at conventions. LBJ is so unpopular, he didn't attend the convention. Rockstar move. That's like when Axl Rose didn't show up when for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of Guns N' Roses. Rockstar move. That's like, I just don't get it. Here's the thing is looking at it, from a political view, a strategic political view, if your platform of being the status quo guy has you be so unpopular that you have to drop out of the race, what makes anyone think that the next guy in line who's also status quo is going to be popular? You ask a perfectly good question. No, they, and I'm, I tried to think up a joke and totally fell on my face there. There, there was a, a Mike Pence joke somewhere there, and nope, nope. Don't edit this out. I want my shame for everyone to hear. Yeah. A 2008 Smithsonian article entitled The Bosses Strike Back at the International Amphitheater. Conventioneers found that the main doors, modeled after a White House portico, had been bulletproofed. The hall itself was surrounded by a steel fence topped with barbed wire. Inside the fence, 
clusters of armed and helmeted police mingled with security guards and dark-suited agents of the Secret Service. At the apex of the stone gates, through which all had to enter, was a huge sign bearing the unintentionally ironic words, Hello, Democrats. Welcome to Chicago. Just come on through this bulletproof archway. Don't mind the armed police. Don't mind the Secret Service. Don't, uh, uh, yeah, don't, don't mind the pad. Welcome. We have this barbed wire, lots of cops. It really reminds me of the Capitol after January 6th. I do not like barbed wire. I do not like to start a fire. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Smithsonian article goes on to say, if this potential village setting weren't enough to intensify anxiety among Democrats gathering to nominate their presidential candidate, the very elements and conditions of Chicago life contributed to a sense of impending disaster. The weather was oppressively hot and humid. The air conditioning, the elevators, and the phones were operating erratically. Taxis weren't operating at all because the drivers had called a strike before the convention began. That's a good old job action. It's, it's, city's having a big old party. May, maybe we are too. According to one delegate, it was like entering a war zone. And he also said that in addition to the taxi strike, there was a bus, phone, and electrician strike. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if the phones were because it was oppressively hot or because of the electrician strike, which the electrician strike will play heavily later in this story. Okay, okay. IBEW. Yeah, I used to be a member. Yeah. Notably, Daly was, of course, an LBJ stan. Okay. And he wanted an LBJ had Kennedy ticket. <laughs> and Humphreys was afraid that LBJ would last minute attend the convention and become the candidate. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, oh God, no, the sitting president might be might run for re-election. <laughs> During the convention, Daly called Ted asking him to run, but the man was grieving his recently shot brother. Yep. So back to the Smithsonian. From whatever political perspective, party regulars, irregulars, or reformers, they all shared an abiding pessimism over their prospects against a Republican Party that had coalesced behind Richard M. Nixon. They gave voice to their various frustrations in the International Amphitheater during bitter, often profane, war fights over anti-war resolutions. The eventual nomination of Humphrey, perceived heir to Johnson's war policies, compounded the sense of betrayal among those who opposed the war. The bosses, not the people who voted in the primaries, had won. Just shoving a shoving a zombie out into he was probably it was dead on arrival. It was dead on arrival. How do you not elect a guy with the middle name Millhouse? Yeah, he was dead on arrival. Listen though, 
It's a divided party lacking an ideological cohesion. I can't think of anything like that in 2023 politics. Are you sure? Because I can come up with a few examples. (laughs) I watched a video of Dan Rather getting punched in the gut by security for trying to talk to a delegate from Georgia who is being escorted out. And I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Okay. That, that, and, uh, that sounds like good family viewing right there. That's great family viewing. He was actually being interviewed by uh, Walter Cronkite at the time. It was, yeah, it was good time. Good times. <laughs> there was also a side beef between LBJ and Humphreys. And Humphreys had the feds record his calls. Okay. But they... We got and yeah, I'm your vice president. You're trying not, but you're gonna work. I'm gonna record the calls. Should, shouldn't that happen anyways? I don't know. I, mean, I think it's personal calls. What are they doing? Having any personal contact whatsoever? There's a one one guy is supposed to be there in case the other guy dies. That's a motivation to get the other guy deaded. Yeah, I think you get a sense of the tension happening in the party and at the convention. A little bit. These radical groups were making threats, placing the water supply so the whole of Chicagoland could turn on, tune in, and drop out. Yes. A naked inn at Lake Michigan. A a naked inn? A naked inn. What, just everybody goes skinny dipping? Or they're sitting on the beach naked. Sign me up. Fantastic time. And using female yippies to seduce delegates. That. Great. Then this was a mock plot that, that they were. This is another one of those yeah. scams. I love it. That's fantastic. Just like talking out of their ass. Yeah. But, and having people take them seriously. But. This thing that was. Too crazy to be taken seriously back then. Yeah, they took it seriously. And then you've got Borat catching Rudy Giuliani trying to take off his pants with... That's... It used to be too crazy for words. And now it's reality. Now it's just reality. Now it's just reality. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The city was prepared for hundreds of thousands of protesters. Or as Richard I called them, terrorist. That bodes not at all ominously. In the second part, there is... Oh, I can't wait to get there. Frank Boss by Mike Ryko. By the time the convention began, the most massive security arrangements in the history of American politics had been completed. Chicago's 12,000 policemen had been put on 12-hour shifts. 5,000... Yes. Uh. Oh. 5,000 Illinois National Guardsmen had been mobilized and were standing by near the downtown area. 6,000 specially trained Army troops were flown in and were in combat readiness at Glenview Naval Air Station, just north of the city. Several hundred state and county Lawmen were on call, and the largest number of Secret Service agents 
ever used at a political convention or in Chicago. I do not like a police state. I do not think they're great. Oh, okay. This is face and hands, voice again. We'll stop in just a moment. Just going to compose myself. You get all those military and quasi-military operations together, and you know that there's going to be some dick measuring going on. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a... I am starting to think that something bad might happen in spite of what you told me at the beginning of this, and I think you might have misled me some. Okay, I'm going to tell Dressette. On December 1st, 1969, they released the Walker Report, which was overseen by Dan Walker, a lawyer, a World War II and Korean War vet. He was the former law clerk for Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Fred Vinson. And he reviewed over 20,000 pages of statements from 3,437 witnesses and protesters, about 180 hours of film, and over 12,000 photographs. When it comes to the violence, I'm going to rely mostly on this report. And this is what the Walker Report says. To characterize the crowd then as entirely hippie, yippie, entirely new left, entirely anarchist, or entirely useful political dissenters is both wrong and dangerous. The stereotyping that did occur helps explain the emotional reaction of both police and public during and after the violence that occurred. Despite the presence of some revolutionaries, the vast majority of the demonstrators were intent on expressing by peaceful means their dissent, either from the society generally or from the administration's policies in Vietnam. So that gives you a sense of who's there. The Smithsonian says they were a hybrid group, radicals, yippies, moderates, representing myriad issues and a wide range of philosophies. But they were united behind an encompassing cause ending the long war in Vietnam and challenging Democratic Party leaders and their delegates to break with the past, create change. Yes, that was the term then on every protester's lips and remake the battered U.S. political system. As Rennie Davis put it, speaking as project director for National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, the largest and most important group for the planned protest. Many of our people have already gone beyond the traditional electoral process to achieve change. We think that the energies released are creating a new constituency for America. Many people are coming to Chicago with a sense of new urgency and a new approach. Yeah, it's when... Those ideas first expressed in the counterculture get broken wi much wider open, and war will do that. 
war it uh, when war yeah w war will do that it's uh, and it's important to understand this wasn't just the revolutionaries this no. wasn't just the abby hoffmans of the world this was everyday folk no, it it happened with the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War as well. Yeah, they went so poorly that no one can deny no, not no one, but it is it becomes next to impossible to deny the fact that there is something deeply shitty and deeply wrong about it. And yeah, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, very relatable content. Yeah, there, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the weekend before the convention, 2,000 people arrive for the Festival of Life and they camp in Lincoln Park, two miles north of the Loop, which is our general business district, and eight miles north of the convention. Yeah. And Daly orders the cops to clear out the park forcing all of these protesters into the street. The first thing they do is fire cannons of tear gas, creating what was a ghost-like radiance. I saw pictures, and what it reminded me was New York City with the Canadian forest fires. Great. That's Lovely. Let's smoke out a park with tear gas. Good. No notes. It, Great idea. And in doing so, they're putting the protesters in opposition with the police. Royko describes it as a game of King of the Hill. Okay. Yeah. I don't like where this is going. And a particularly chilling quote we'll talk about later. This is what may have determined the election and altered the course of world history. The decision of the city that no one would be in Lincoln Park after 11 o'clock. Curfew. Curfew might have, curfew, Iraq war might have happened because we had a curfew in Lincoln Park. That's neat. That's that, that just great feelings about all of this. Yep. Okay. The walk report says demonstrators attacked too, and they posed difficult problems for police as they persisted in marching through the streets, blocking traffic and intersections. But it was the police who forced them out of the park and into the neighborhood. And on the part of the police, there was enough wild club swinging, enough cries of hatred, enough gratuitous beating to make the conclusion inescapable that individual policemen and lots of them committed violent acts far in excess of the requisite force for the crowd dispersal or arrest. To read dispassionately the hundreds of statements describing at first hand the events of Sunday and Monday nights is to become convinced of the presence of what can only be called a police riot. You know that right now, Dick Cheney has an erection and he doesn't know why. Where did this come from? Where did the, well, how did this happen? Yeah. So anytime anyone anywhere talks about cops beating protesters, Dick, yeah, 
Yeah. Dick. Yeah. The Walker report goes on to say that like the incident described above, much of the violence witnessed in Old Town that night seems malicious or mindless. There were pedestrians. People who were not part of the demonstration were coming out of the tavern to see what the demonstration was, and the officers indiscriminately started beating everyone on the street who was not a policeman. Okay. Yep. N- yep. N- nothing's changed. Cool. Cool. Evidently, people were watching from their windows, and the police were screaming obscenities and daring them to come down on the streets. Who can turn down an invitation like that? That's, that's I, a, a I, I live roving gang of people who can commit violent acts with impunity. Who's where's the room for bad feelings about that? I lived there, and I gotta tell you, I probably would have just stayed in my apartment. Really. If I was back there, yeah. Yeah, I guess we're just having different reactions to all of this. They started targeting journalists and camera crews. I'm surprised they waited. Of the 300 newspaper, about 20% were injured, had their equipment damaged, or were arrested. Those are rookie numbers. 63 out of 100? Come on. Out of 300. 300. What? Uh, they had to beat the hippies too. Wow. What? Yeah. And the people you, leaving the tavern. You have to prioritize. You've got. These cops are fucking amateurs. Can't beat up some journalists. Come on. So this goes on for three nights. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this is in the main event. So here's where we're going to end the episode. How are you doing? Any thoughts? That, oh, that, so this goes on for three nights and they're just beating the journalists, beating the protesters, beating anyone who just happens to be in the wrong restaurant. That, and how, what are my thoughts? I feel like a river when Dave Matthews tour bus is going by. I'm going to leave that reference deliberately obscure because that event's going to have its own episode. Is it? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to leave it there. Tell people where they can find you on socials. Oh, oh on social media. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because currently you can find me curled up on the floor. <laughs> trying to try, try on social media. I don't really do much of it. I leave it up to my bandmates. I'm Pat from the Grinning Barretts. You can find us on, you can find the band on, on the Twitter you can find the band on the Facebook. I think there there might be a TikTok. You can find us at thegrinningbarretts.com or .ca. I don't know which one Dave set up. Dave is our webmaster. He'll look after all of that. I I try to stay away from most social media because I like myself somewhat. So I just try to stay off of it. That is smart. Yeah, it's one of the, one of the only smart things I've ever done with my life. So there, there's that. No, but if you want, there's the yeah, there's the grinningbarretts.com or .ca, and that's the grinning as in you're smiling, and Barretts as in the last name Barrett, 
And we are a Celtic punk band from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Our first record is coming out next month. We are getting some advanced copies of it to start selling. So that uh, that record will be called Bottle Hymns, or is called Bottle Hymns. I can hold up a sticker. You can see the uh, the album cover there. It's going to be super duper. Grab that. And uh, yeah, you can pre-order it. There will be a pre-order link up there soon. And uh, I'm just going to go lie down and start drinking. Cause, All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Please hit the subscribe button quicker than the CPD hits anyone who might be the media and share with your friends like Abby Hoffman passing a bong. <laughs>